You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are joined today by Francis Stead Sellers, senior writer on the American desk at the Washington Post. Francis, thanks so much for taking time to speak with us today. I'm delighted to be with you both. I'm so impressed with the sort of range of and the inquisitiveness that you've shown with a range of topics and your versatility as a thinker and a journalist. I mean, you've written about presidential candidates, about the rehabilitation of Baltimore after the Freddie Gray murder, about Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico. You've shown a special interest in public health. You're talking now about transparency and journalism. You can speak from so many different reporting experiences. And that's partly why we're so thrilled to have you with us today. So I want to start out with a really big question and ask you to just try and answer it from what you know and what you've reported on. Because in these last several months in reading over the body of your work, you've covered so many topics, and we'll get into these, that are directly relevant to this health crisis and economic crisis that we face, and now racial strife. So let me start off by just saying, you know, the United States today, this is July 6th, we've shocked ourselves and most of the world by how much we've failed to contain and control the coronavirus pandemic. And we've invited pity, frustration, and sadness in ways that we've never seen from the outside world. We have 3 million cases, 130,000 deaths, and now we have no fewer than four very hot hotspots, Florida, Texas, Arizona, California. And this health crisis is interwoven in very complicated ways with our economic crisis and the civil strife that followed the killing of George Floyd. Francis, from where you sit and the reporting that you've done, how do we begin to untangle and explain a failure that is so colossal and dramatic by America in this? Well, you started, as you said, with a very big question, and it'll take much cleverer people than me, shoe leather epidemiologists and historians and investigative reporters to try and untangle some of these things. But you're right, as you can hear, I'm not American and I hear from relatives around the world in in Britain and Italy in particular, um, who are struggling to understand what has gone wrong in this country that, you know, we see the numbers here going shooting up in a way that resembles Brazil more than the rest of the world. And we talk a lot about divides here. And I sort of step back from the political divides to think about some of the divides I've seen as a reporter in the past year. Last year, before the pandemic, I did a couple of stories about access to clean water in America, of all places, access to clean water. And I went to eastern Kentucky uh, in the Appalachian Mountains and found people who couldn't rely on their water supply. I went to the Navajo Nation, where the third of the people there don't have running water. So I'm seeing a divide of basic resources, a divide of a basic safety net that a lot of people don't have. You try telling people now who live in the Navajo Nation and don't have running water that they should wash their hands or migrant workers who are traveling around the place. Mm-hmm. I just feel as if there are divides in this country that, that I have the great privilege as a reporter on the America's Desk to go out and learn about and try and help other people understand about. And those are the, the perspectives I see. They've surprised and shocked me. But when I try and see people grappling with the pandemic, because of that experience, I see the perspectives they're coming from and the way that one single message doesn't work to try and combat this in a country as huge and varied as this one. You know, that point you've made, I mean, you 
you've emphasized in your reporting around water and also hunger and malnutrition um, that strikes a broad swath of American, that there's this mixture of distrust that you see, but also shame, that you've witnessed a certain side of America that shows what festers in these divisions within our society is a lot of deep skepticism and distrust. Right. And a, and a certain amount of, of societal fracturing and shame. Right. I, I, you know, I was at a food bank recently in Pennsylvania, and this was among catering to a lot of the mushroom growers, many of them migrant workers, others who are based mm-hmm. there, many of them not originally from the United States, many of them from Mexico. And this pandemic has highlighted their dire straits. They live in many of them to the same house. A lot of them travel from work to work in buses in close proximity. So once the pandemic gets among a group of people like that, it's very, very hard to combat it. They're losing jobs and then they're more dependent on the food bank and the food bank has also been providing testing. And there's a sort of idea, I think, that some people from Latino or African-American backgrounds from lower socioeconomic divides won't go and get tested, that they resist contact testing, tracing and resist testing. But in fact, these people really wanted to know, even though they risk being kicked out of communal housing if they tested positive. So I think all the time, one of the things about reporting is that it's wonderful when it surprises you and opens your eyes and makes you realize that the biases uh, that we all bring to our understandings of a country are actually changed when you go out and, and talk to people and learn about them. Were you shocked to see what a disproportionate burden this pandemic imposes on those that are more marginalized or people of color, black, brown, those who are in those areas of our society where you, which you've shown as sort of divided and disenfranchised? So it's both completely shocking. And then when you step back and think logically about it, it's not surprising. We know that those people are more vulnerable. We know many of them do not have the luxury I have sitting here working from home. We know that many of them have comorbidities, which wealthier people tend not to have. So more African-American and Latino people suffer from hypertension, diabetes, obesity. So yes, it's utterly shocking. And yet when you try and fit all those pieces together, it's completely logical that those groups would suffer more greatly than privileged white people in this country. Well, that gets to another issue I want to draw you out on, which you've covered in your writing, which is You've examined in a couple of different ways the absence of some of the fundamental elements of preparedness in the United States. And by that, I mean you focused on the disinvestment in public health uh, across those 3,000 jurisdictions in America. How do we understand that? What does that mean in terms of an underlying weakness? You focused on how difficult it is and how much doubt surrounds the ability to create contact tracing in these same communities when we desperately need that. And you've written about this bizarre phenomenon that Andrew's talked about of the inability to get beyond the politicization of masks, the most elementary sort of tools. So tell us a little bit, you've reported in all three of those areas and in reading through your work to see how you've really tried to dissect, okay, what is it that's missing? So I think one of the big surprises for me was I didn't really understand how the public health system to the extent the system works in this country. You mentioned there are 3,000, think of that, separate agencies in this country. In a state like North Carolina, a hundred small rural agencies working to try and do their best. And and of course, public health, and I realized with speaking to people that 
a lot of people don't even understand what its mission is and how broad its mandate is. So it's a yes. largely preventive mission, but divided between 100 little agencies in North Carolina, um, where there are no economies of scale, lots of people trying to do good work, and constant cuts in the budget. So these are problems that predate any political division we have now. I talked to the head of the public health department, for example, in Sacramento, Peter Bielensen, who told me his budget was slashed in 2008 and is still not reach the levels it was was then. Right. These are the the situations we had coming into this pandemic. Every time a disaster like this happens, you have to appropriate money for it. There's no contingency fund to face a pandemic. So all the response was delayed on a on a federal level. The CDC doesn't have authority to just barge into a state and start ordering it around and telling it what to do. So as a reporter, I you know this opened my eyes incredibly and you know I come from a country where Public health is far more integrated into the health system. It yes. has its own problems. My, I'm not saying I'm not sitting here advocating for a different system, but here I think the figure is that $19 per person per year is spent on the preventive mission of public health, and we spend about $11,000 per person on treatment health or getting people better. All the things that people have insurance do. That's a vast gulf, and to have an efficient public health system should take about $32 per head per year, experts say. I knew none of this and learned it by doing some reporting in early March. These seem like solvable problems that would have given us a head start going into this pandemic. I want to invite my partner in this enterprise, Andrew Schwartz, to jump in. Andrew? Thanks, Steve. Francis, as a host for Washington Post Live, you've engaged with different corporate leaders on how they're responding to pressures to show greater seriousness of purpose in battling racism, economic disparities and poverty, and rising malnutrition. Do you see an awakening underway today within the American business sector? I do. I really do think there's a change. I should talk about my own office, which um, is hiring a dozen new reporters and a new managing editor for diversity before I talk about the other businesses. We'll have new reporters. Yeah, the Post for, has been in the news for Right. This. So for things like health disparities, the issues I was talking about, but I'm not an expert on, we'll have somebody focused on that, on environmental injustice. Again, a huge issue that came up in my water reporting, but it's not my entire focus. And there'll be people doing this, as well as people looking more closely at some of the other stories I've worked on that look at racial disparities, white supremacy and vulnerability, um, all these other issues that we've, we've seen playing into this. On Washington Post Live, again, I've been very fortunate to be able to host some conversations. And I do think that CEOs of some major corporations, for example, Intel, I spoke to their CEO, are trying to figure out ways to try to increase awareness and increase hiring of women and minorities. But what struck me in these conversations is how very long it takes. So Intel wants to double the number of senior leadership who are women and minorities by 2030. That's a decade out. I also talked to the CEO of Bombas, the sock-making company. Very different. I think Intel, we're talking about tens, maybe 110,000 employees or something. Bombas, small company, far more agile, far more based on the notion of doing well by doing good. I mean, they have a charitable underpinning. They give away a pair of socks for every pair of socks you buy. They're much more able to be flexible, right? Um, they they came in with a mission 
to be open to ideas, to be self-aware, and they're embracing that in their going ahead. So I think it's enormously varied in, in how these companies can manage. Um, I've also interviewed the head of the U.S. Chambers of Commerce, again, trying to encourage businesses to embrace these core values that are so central right now. Does it shock you that in the Fortune 500, only four CEOs are African-American? So we answered another question earlier on by saying things can be shocking, but not surprising, if you know what I mean. And I think my answer to that is the same, that when we think about the historic disparities, it's not that surprising, but it is shocking that it's still true in 2020. How have you and your fellow journalists had to modify your approaches to cover the pandemic and racial issues? So... Again, striking thing is how seamlessly we moved into working from home, and that um, speaks highly of the organization behind the the whole enterprise. The other thing is it's entirely, entirely different. I spend a lot of my time traveling, as did many of my colleagues. We've been very fortunate to have the budget to travel at the Washington Post. So the stories I talked about early on, um, I was able to go and spend time in the Navajo Nation. I went to eastern Kentucky. I've traveled a lot in the past year. Now I'm doing almost all my reporting from home. We use FaceTime. People can show us around the place with new technology. They can Zoom with us. Um, But as you know, from everybody else's jobs, you miss those little incidental things. You know, the person you walk past as you go to the interview that you think you're going to do and you stop and talk to. I don't do that anymore. I think one of the things we've learned to do and we're we're trying to do very, very hard is to collaborate more so that um, I went out on a story with a photographer the other day. She's traveling a lot more than I am and she's helping me with my reporting. And that's always true to some extent. It's always better to have more than one set of eyes. But you'll see lots of our stories now have three or four bylines on them. And I think it's because one person might be out, another person's in the office, another person's at home, you know, actually very few people in the office. We're in different home offices and trying to work together to put a full picture together. So it's a it's a huge challenge. The protests are an enormous challenge and it takes great courage to go out and possibly face the danger from the pandemic, but also from tear gas. I have a colleague who was, you know, caught in the crossfire um, not very long ago. You know, and then there are added pressures on journalists. Um, you know, we all know there are threats and other things um, in this wild social media world. So, are you sensing a greater threat and delegitimation of traditional journalism as you go out and try and practice this? So, you know, it's it's always interesting, right? I you'll go to places and people will say, oh, you're not from the Washington Post. But when you actually talk to them and they realize you're a reasonable person, um, when you're out and about, I feel as if one tends to overcome those barriers fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to on a telephone line and when there's social media there. So I think that's a real change and a disadvantage in that people tend to be genuinely interested if you are genuinely interested in listening to them. Well, so one of the things I was going to ask you about this is, you know, Marty Baron, the incredible executive editor of the Washington Post, comes from very important regional newspapers, the Miami Herald, the Boston Globe, of course, where he spearheaded the investigation of the Catholic Church in Boston famously. Do you see this as an opportunity for, you know, major newspapers like the Washington Post to collaborate with local journalists and local journalism and local journalists who have been struggling and local newspapers who have been failing right. in the past decade due to the internet and many other factors. Is, is this an opportunity for this kind of collaborative journalism that we really haven't seen? Well, in fact, you have seen more of it and you may not have realized it in our pages. We have something called the Talent Network, 
which started since Marty came on. And I should make clear in all these answers, I'm not speaking for the whole Washington Post. I'm speaking from the perspective that I have. But the Talent Network is a centralized system of vetting reporters from around the country. And there are many, of course, who've lost jobs. And this is, I think, the real worry, um, how to cover local journalism around the country. Many of them have lost jobs or people who were freelancers before. They're vetted centrally to make sure that they have no conflicts of interest and that they live up to Washington Post standards. And then we call on them if we can't get a reporter into place quickly. And that has proved very useful during the pandemic. But it did last year. If I For example, when I went up to Massachusetts, gosh, how long ago is it? A year and a half ago, what, during the fire explosions? Or when I first Mm -hmm. went to Paradise after the fires in Paradise, um, the first person on the ground was a talent network reporter who was already vetted, was local, knew the scene there, could be there before me, and then I joined them. So I joined a fantastic former Boston Globe reporter in Massachusetts, for example. She was there before me. I was able to join in. And the first stories we did were joint byline by the two of us. Sometimes I'm in the office and there's a talent network reporter out who knows the place. And when it comes to state legislatures, they're all different, as you know, far better than I do. (laughs) Reporting stories out of a state you don't know very well can be very tricky if you don't know the characters in the legislature or how it works. There's a great reporter in Louisiana who was recommended to us and is now on our talent network who has helped out many times recently with insights and knowledge that is locally based and helps our reporting. And a lot of the stories we will do have a national thrust, but they're obviously locally based and local person will help. So that's the way we've been doing it. You can see other groups, I'm thinking ProPublica, and there's some foundation-based groups which have linked up with local newspapers to try and help fund local journalism that's particularly of national relevance. Steve's chuckling because it's like you read my mind because anybody who knows anything about the state of Louisiana knows that just try going into Louisiana and figuring out what's going on in government there. I'm a Tulane graduate. Oh, you are? Okay. Yeah. And figuring out how the city of New Orleans works, much less the state of Louisiana works politically, is a masterclass in and of itself. There you go. And the reason why the New Orleans Times-Picayune was always a pipeline for reporters to the Washington Post and the New York Times. Right. If you could make it there, you could make it on the national scale. Right. Francis, I want to turn to sort of the way that the virus has changed communication strategies, changed delivery of medicine, changed management of natural disasters. We had John Barry on our podcast. We, we are recently talking from New Orleans. And I know you had reported on the No COVID Project that right. Mary Madeline and Jim Carville, John Barry had a hand in. Very innovative look at how to change the way that you communicate at all in hyper-local platforms and that sort of thing. Very promising. And you've also looked at how those who are struggling to prepare for the next round of hurricanes, which has started very early this season, uh, in those hurricane-prone areas, are changing their thinking around how to shelter, how to protect. So there have been these innovations. There's also been these sort of shocking revelations, which I think you brought forward really well about how people are scared and staying away from emergency rooms when they should be in those emergency rooms. Right. That was a a shocking story to do. And, you know, a few weeks before that, I had done a story um, with doctors saying, please stay away from the ER. That was the message that was going out. They were very worried at the beginning of the pandemic that people would go to the ER when it was an unsafe place to be. I did that reporting. I think it was a good story. I think it was an honest story that fitted the message I was being given. A few weeks later, 
doctors were really worried about the message they'd given out, that they'd frightened people away. And um, my colleague, Lenny Bernstein and I collaborated on a story about exactly that. I learned about it actually. Um, Mount Sinai had converted its cardiovascular unit into a COVID unit, a whole ICU mm-hmm. and another ward into a COVID unit. And the doctor there said to me, you know, like, where have all the heart attack patients gone? I used to, this ward right, used to be full. They disappeared. And he said to me, I think they're frightened to come in. They also change their behavior. So these things, again, you know, it's going to take a lot of untangling before we can figure out exactly what was going on. He also said to me, they're not commuting to work and walking up the subway stairs. They're not having very fatty meals after work in the evening. All those things could have been contributing. They weren't getting their angina from walking up the subway stairs and they weren't having these huge meals after a stressful day. Those things could have contributed. But it seems as if many people were frightened to go to the emergency room. And after we reported that story, which included an anecdote about a person who had appendicitis and he didn't go to the emergency room in time. So what could have been a quick appendicectomy turned into a festering sepsis in his bowel, I guess. And this is a young man. This, this is, is a young like man. 30 years old. Right. A young man. After the story ran, Lenny, my colleague, got a message from a woman said, I read that story. My stomach's been hurting. I went to the hospital. I had appendicitis. You've saved my life. Uh, we don't often get messages like that. And yeah, that's a big deal. It is a big, big deal. So uh, you are actually, the, this came up, Steve, because you were asking about innovations, telemedicine. I mean, doctors told me that they had been working for years to try and introduce telemedicine. Innovations happened in a number of months that they've been working on for years. Right. Telemedicine won't cure all. But one doctor, an emergency room doctor, again, actually at Mount Sinai, said, you know, there are things I can't do by telemedicine, but I can say, open your fridge for me see what people are eating or take me into the back room and find somebody back there smoking. You know, I mean, you can go on the phone with somebody around their house, which you can't do when they come into... It's licensed to to have a much higher level of intimacy. In some ways, yeah. So there are things you can't do. My brother's a doctor and he teaches at the moment. He said, I can't teach somebody to examine a patient. I can't teach my medical students to examine a patient because you can't show how hard you have to push on their abdomen or whatever it is by phone. So there are things you definitely can't do in medicine. But it's interesting to see people think innovatively about how they can adjust. The No COVID coalition that you raised and that John Barry is a part of as well as this is a nonpartisan coalition is fascinating for its attempt to use um, hyper-local means of messaging to people. And I think in this pandemic, it's very clear that a message that works for one community is needs to be changed for another one. The most basic one I can think of is hand-washing. Don't emphasize only hand-washing if people don't have clean water to wash their hands in. You have to think about other means of protecting them. And they're looking for local influencers, right? They're looking for that football coach or that, Absolutely. that faith leader. Yeah. Or, or somebody who's got a national platform but came from an area and so has a big group of followers in that area. It's very interesting. And of course, it's, you know, it's a development from what has been used in um, political campaigns recently as well to figure out what local right. messaging should be. Yeah, I thought that was an ingenious initiative, bringing in executives from Ogilvy, right. bringing Palantir. in folks who were Palantir together. And it was interesting that it started, as I understand, it started with Carville objecting to something that John Barry had written, an op-ed or something, and said, well, you can write that sort of op-ed, but you're not going to really reach right. the people you need to reach. We need something different. He gently, Carville, they're friends, and they both are in New Orleans, and Carville gently chided Barry about publishing an op-ed in the New York Times and said, you know, you need to reach a, a whole different group of people. You're pe- preaching to the choir by publishing this in the New York Times. So this is a whole effort to spread a message and reach people, as they say now, where they are. Yeah. 
Well, we're starting a project middle of July looking at vaccine hesitancy in America and the security implications and the degree to which it's tied to these disinformation campaigns. But it's moving. One big subject area is exactly what the No COVID Coalition is looking at, which is who has standing and legitimacy to connect to people. Right. Because the skepticism and distrust run so thick and the environment of misinformation is just so alive that people don't oftentimes don't know who to trust or what to believe. So I did a story out of Texas last week with a colleague who's down there. Again, one of these joint stories. But during that, I talked to people who are involved in vaccine work down there and very concerned about issues of misinformation and disinformation and concerned also that if and when there's a COVID vaccine, the uptake may not be perfect and the information about it may not be perfect. And if there is a COVID vaccine and it's rushed in through production and has flaws, which is a possibility, or big side effects, which is a, always a possibility, what that could mean among this increasingly vaccine-hesitant population. And those are very big concerns, I think, for people who are involved in vaccine production, how to make sure that we produce one as quickly and, very importantly, as safely as possible. So my job in Steve's project is going to be to, you know, get this message out to reporters all over the country and all over the world, but also to talk to every high school football coach in the nation to tell them <laughs> to get the word out right. in their communities, because Steve's right. It, you, you've got to get the people who people listen to. Right. So Francis, we try and end every conversation this type with our guests by asking the question of like, what gives you the greatest strength and hope in the midst of all of these intersecting crises and uncertainty and fear and anxiety that's, that we see in America today? So I think from my reporting, as I said earlier, when I go out and meet people, there's a level of trust and connection when you actually see people. And I have great faith in humanity, ultimately. But as you know, and as I mentioned as well at the beginning, I'm an immigrant to this country. And so I've thought very hard about America as a concept. And I do think that there have been moments in this country when there have been extreme division. This isn't the first time. But the notion of a race publica, of working for the common good, are very important. And I ultimately think this country was founded on and believes in enlightening values as well. And I have great faith in that, ultimately, that there will be ups and downs and divisions. But even though I know there's you know great controversy about that founding period, the values were of improving the lot for the population. And I think those values ultimately win out. Well, Francis, you've been very generous with us today. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights with us. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And you helped me to think about some big things, which is important as we, you know, step away from our daily work for a while. We really appreciate it. 